Greetings, I'm Brett Hutchins and welcome back for another episode of the Media Sport Podcast Series, number 25. This discussion is with a distinguished figure in the sociology of sport, John Horne, from the University of Central Lancashire in the UK. John has been a leading name in the study of sport and sociology for a number of decades. Indeed, I was reading his analysis of figurational sociology and the work of Norbert Elias and Eric Dunning in the early 1990s. He has published since on an expansive range of topics, including sports mega-events such as the Olympics and the Football World Cup, globalisation, sport in East Asia, social movements and sustainability. His many monographs and edited collections include Sport, Leisure and Social Relations, a book that was originally published in 1987 and reissued in 2014. Other titles have included Sport and Consumer Culture, Understanding the Olympics, Mega Events and Globalisation and Sport and Social Movements from the Local to the Global. His collaborators over the years include similarly well-known names such as Alan Tomlinson, Gary Winnell, Rick Grineau and Wolfram Manzenreiter. He is also Vice-Chair of the British Sociological Association and Vice-President of the International Sociology of Sport Association. My request to speak with John was triggered by his role as series editor of the Globalising Sports Studies series of books published by Bloomsbury Academic and Manchester University Press. It's a series that gives actual meaning to the term agenda setting in the study of global sport, society and culture. Books in the series cover an array of topics including sport for peace and development, technology, the environment, cricket and race, women's sport, boxing, soccer and media sport. Guests from previous podcast episodes who have published in this book series include Robin Kietlinski and David Rowe. The Globalising Sports Studies series is, in my opinion, essential reading for any teacher and researcher interested in the intersection of sport, society and culture. John, thanks for joining me for the Media Sport Podcast series. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for inviting me. Very happy to be here. How, how did you start in the study of sociology and sport? How did you commence your career? Well, I came in through um, perhaps for some people a kind of unusual route. Um, I hadn't really thought about sport as an academic subject. I'd uh, played sport as a you know as a, a schoolboy and not got beyond that level of of engagement in the the actual playing of, of sports cricket, soccer, occasionally hockey, field hockey. But um, um, I, I'd finished my undergraduate degree and was uh, I was thinking about this question because you posed it to me earlier. I, was fi- I finished my undergraduate degree and in those days, this was 1970s, we wrote, we wrote final examinations. We called them finals. They were unseen papers that we wrote and then we had that month or six weeks where we waited to find out what the results were what 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 we'd done we didn't know it wasn't like continuous assessment that has developed over the last several decades anyway i met my one of my lecturers and uh, i talked started talking to him about cricket uh, the test match was going to be on it, it might have been against the aussies i can't remember to be to be honest but uh, anyway, he said, oh, you ought to have a look at a book I've got back home. So I went to the lecturer's house and he thrust a copy of Beyond a Boundary into my hands. 
uh, by CLR James. And uh, well, I, I kind of thought, well, this is this is amazing. Here's a here's a Marxist, black Marxist intellectual and writing chapters about, uh, you know, the, the West Indies greats of the 1960s and uh, and 50s and 60s. And so that sowed a seed that, that told me that you could actually write some very interesting things about sport using theoretical um, perspectives that I, I, I was particularly interested in at the time. So that sowed the seed. And um, to, to cut this rather long story short, perhaps, um, when, I, when I got my first sociology position in 1980, uh, it was the, the beginning of uh, sport programs in British universities. And my university then, it was, it was called a polytechnic, a bit like your, I think they were called TAFs in, in Australia. Uh, it was North Staffordshire Polytechnic, and they were just starting, they hadn't yet run a program in sport and recreation studies. And nobody, nobody in sociology wanted to touch it with a barge pole. They didn't want to teach sport. They thought it was not something that was proper you know, it was it was it wasn't political. It was uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't their cup of tea at all. But I thought it was perfectly, uh, you know, appropriate thing to to study because I'd been interested in the sociology of culture, uh, the sociology of literature, uh, and the sociology of popular culture uh, from leaving my first degree and doing a master's. Um, and so um, I took it up and um, I, I can't believe I'm still teaching it 30, 37 years later, but I, I still am somehow. And it, it's a really interesting period in the, the development of the fields. Um, I'll, I'll call it very broadly that you've, you've seen sport move from um, an often rejected or marginalised position to one that's increasingly sort of recognised as something that needs to be taken seriously. So what, yep. in, what in your mind does the sociology of sport have to offer the dis discipline of sociology more generally at this moment in time? Well, I think this moment in time and, and back then, um, it, uh, well, at least it, I developed this understanding of, it, of its contribution because what does sport do that uh, other so uh, aspects of social life doesn't do sport sport condenses all sorts of uh, features of social life we can you know uh, one of my um associates over the years john williams at leicester university once said he could teach sociology by talking about football hooliganism he was one of the um so-called leicester school of people who worked with eric dunning and pat murphy uh, uh and uh, and had produced the work in in the late 80s in the 1980s and early 90s on football hooliganism in in England and and hooligans abroad and John you know suggested that he could actually teach sociology in all its facets whether you wanted to talk about research methodology uh, social identity social class ethnicity gender uh, political economy you could teach if you wanted to and if you had time and you were encouraged to do so you could teach sociological elements every element in a or every chapter in a sociology primer a sociology introductory text utilizing the material that you can develop from looking at um, a sport phenomenon sporting phenomenon now obviously that was a focus on fandom and one of the things i've been interested in in the past quite dim 
quite distant past now was, was football fandom. But um, uh, I think that is one of the, 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 the ways in which sport can contribute. The other thing is, What's fascinating about sport in, in a different way is it raises issues which some sociologists have taken for granted, very much taken for granted. So, for example, emotions, uh, corporeality, um, the opportunities to think about uh, life beyond work, you know, which a lot of sociology was very much focused on um, employment obviously for, for very good reasons, uh, uh, social structures, class relations and so on. That's for, for obviously essential. But what sport contributes is an added, di or added dimensions of, of social life, which I just found fascinating. And I think still challenge other sociologists when, you know, if, they, if, if there is any, if there is still some derision towards the study of sport, then I think it, it's not too difficult to point out there are things that studying sport can can do that that other sociolo sociological topics just can't reach. This is me speculating, but your theory on why there is that hostility to sport among some, let's just say people in the humanities and social sciences, not to get too specific about discipline, is does it come from a process of intellectual training or do you believe it comes as much from sort of personal background and autobiography? That's an interesting question. I, I think um, there is a degree of still this distinction between, if you like, the popular and the, uh, the, the popular culture and, and high culture. Uh, I think that perhaps still runs through some of our some of our training. Um, I think it's quite interesting. I should just say that I was fortunate enough to be at the annual conference of the British Sociological Association last week. Uh, that was held in Manchester in England. And um, uh, for the first time that I can remember, possibly the first time ever, um, the um, we have a Book of the Year award. It's called the Philip Abraham's Book of the Year after a, 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 social, um, a historical sociologist, Philip Abraham. Um, and uh, one uh, and it, two books won the uh, competition this year, won the award this year. And one of them is called Football, Ethnicity and Community, The Life of an African Caribbean Football Club by Paul Ian Campbell. Uh, it's, it's an award for the first book published by somebody so paul uh, paul campbell is a is a young scholar he's at coventry university and it's a fascinating study i'm fortunate enough to have a copy in, actually in my hands as i'm speaking to you that's the, the book i'm reading at the moment and it's a really interesting piece of work he did it as a phd but the book has been um taken out of the phd mode of writing and is is a is a is an interesting read in its own right, but illustrates very well the way in which good sociology applied to, in this case, um, uh, uh, trying to understand the changing identities of what I call black uh, black Britons uh, in a period from the 1970s to the uh, the early um, 21st century. Fascinating study, and uh, I, I didn't read it as one of the judges. But uh, I, I'm, uh, I, I can see why I'm beginning to see why, having read 50 pages of the book, why the judges have given it the award they have. So maybe this is a, another indication that 
sociology more generally, sociologists more generally will start to say, hey, there is something really quite interesting in the topic of sport. And it really brings me to the question of the the globalising sports studies series. Um, what, what was the motivation or, or thinking behind that series? One of my uh, colleagues uh, in Canada once called it the Harry Potter uh, <laughs> book series uh, because um, just to sort of explain the world of publishing, Bloomsbury Publishing Company is the publisher for the Harry Potter books in uh, in the UK. I don't know about Australia. They, I think it's probably another company in in the state. But anyway, you can imagine the enormous amount of money that Bloomsbury were able to realise as a result of publishing um, J.K. Rowling's series. And um, around about the end of uh, 2008, uh, uh, Bloomsbury accepted a challenge that a woman called Frances Pinter, who previously had a publishing company of her own, uh, accepted a challenge to develop uh, open access books, open access publishing. She recruited two people as her commissioning editors, and one of them had commissioned me for another book with, with Polgrave Macmillan called Sporting Consumer Culture. Anyway, so this commissioning editor, her name is Emily Souls. She contacted me and said, would I be interested in creating a book series on the basis that um, it would be using Creative Commons licenses, which would basically mean that um, authors would sign up to publish a book in the normal way, would go through the usual processes, but the material could be available online for downloading for free. And I was excited by this because of the you know, the potential for reach, uh, as, as is explained by the, um, the Bloomsbury. I, I was looking at Bloomsbury's um, uh, commentary about this back in, in 2008, not long ago, and Bloomsbury were basically seeing it as an experiment. Publishers have been trying to experiment with, with open access because of the, the general developments that have been going on with open access. And this was an experiment in, in publishing. The argument that the, the business argument of the publishers was that, yes, we will lose some sales because some people will download the book and they won't buy it. But they also felt that this might be compensated for for the greater reach. And maybe most people wouldn't want to download 10 chapters of a book. They'd ultimately say if they like the book's first three chapters, they might actually buy the book. They were print on demand books at paperback after a, a year. And so all in all, the proposition that I was given by the commissioning editor was something which I thought was quite exciting. Mm. I, also, I also wanted an opportunity to offer people, um, uh, I wanted the, uh, to offer people the opportunity to publish monographs and not um, constantly have to worry about um, uh, journal articles and um, book chapters. I didn't want a series that, that, that emulated the big guns in in sport publishing for example you know other other companies we could mention such as Routledge for example that has a vast vast catalog and the aim was not to sort of emulate them but was to enable scholars new scholars uh, early career scholars um, uh, people from around the world who are working on topics perhaps in slightly different ways than had been done in the past to uh, an opportunity to publish 
And you're right. I I I, ha I am very pleased with the series. We've published eleven books so far. Uh, there's one just about to come out uh, um, by Maurice Roche on mega events, revisiting his famous book about mega events, but developing it and extending and expanding the the, the argument. And another one uh, is is un underway. So there there aren't many coming out each year, but there is a sort of a steady trickle as it were of of these books and if if you think back over the 11 books um how what are the sort of proposals you're getting saying about the way that sport leisure sport and leisure are developing in in the world in which we live at this point yeah i i think what it's suggesting is there are some fairly standard you know, there is the global sport of football. I've de deliberately, I won't say I've deliberately um, avoided publishing lots of football material. I, I haven't received lots of football um, proposals. But when, for example, Mark Doidge approached me or I approached Mark, because it's sometimes proposals come in and sometimes I hear about somebody, somebody's work and ask them if they're interested. When I think I approached Mark Deutsch um, when I heard he'd been doing a PhD about um, football in Italy, and um, that was that was one one exception. I thought there there was there was a there was room for something that talked seriously sociologically about recent developments in Italian football being one of the big five leagues, as they're called in Europe, maybe big five leagues in the world, and um, so I was very pleased about that. Um, there are other dimensions. For example, you mentioned Robin Kitlinski, who you had on your program not long ago. She, um, I again, just happenstance met Robin at a, a small conference about a sport in Japan, which I've also some interest in, and um, realised that there was somebody who could actually say something not just about sport in Japan, but women in sport in Japan. And I thought this was, again, something I hadn't seen in book length form anywhere else. That maybe pieces in, in, in journal articles and book chapters. But at that time, I hadn't seen a full length monograph. And I thought it would be nice to see how that would be received. Um, so there are there are topics that are, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's serendipity. You just happen to meet somebody. You hear somebody's working on something. Sometimes um, there are topics that are coming through. For example, the book on um, uh, the greening of golf by Brad Millington and Brian Wilson obviously speaks to another interest of mine. And I think an interest of everybody's, which is the environment and changing climate. So, again, Br Brad and, and Brian happen to have just finished or just in the process of finishing a research project on environmental issues and golf. And uh, it, it, it fitted very well that they were, you know, um, very gr good writers and, and good sociologists and they could contribute to the series. And you mentioned East Asia in passing earlier. What, what's, where does that interest come from and, and what does that region of the world tell us um, that perhaps other regions don't? Well, I think I've suggested that I feel in in many ways my career is is full of serendipitous moments. But essentially, you you mentioned a book I published or co-edited in uh, 1987 called Sport, Leisure and Social Relations. And on the basis of that book, 
uh, in the early 1990s, I was contacted by a Japanese scholar who um, uh, who thought because my name was first on the um, the editorial list that I was a very distinguished white haired um, professor and actually didn't recognize me when I, I picked him up from a from a railway station. Uh, he thought I was the postgrad come to take him to the professor. He didn't realize that somebody this young could have been, you know, the lead editor of that collection. Anyway, um, and what happened was I, I was then um, brought, uh, I was given the opportunity to visit Japan for the first time in 1993. And uh, that just happened to coincide with uh, the launch of uh, professional football in Japan, the J-League, as it's called, uh, kicked off in 1993. And there was a little um, media uh, coverage of that in, in Britain, uh, especially England, because Gary Lineker, former England player, um, had, was, was um, seeing out his playing career in Japan and had been um, hired by uh, Nagoya Grand Passat, one of the, the first 10 uh, J-League teams. So I, I, I arrived in Japan about the same time that there was a bit of Lineker um, fever. The J-League was starting uh, in a way that I hadn't ever seen it. I hadn't seen football treated like this because uh, the, the J-League adopted some of the, 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 the methods of promotion that you associate with American football, with baseball, with the American style of commercial advertising. So you couldn't visit a McDonald's or... Uh, a fast food store without finding some reference to the J-League. There were J-League boutiques. And this was before a ball had been kicked. It didn't actually start until May. And I visited in March, April 1993. So it was a it was a fascinating moment for a sociologist to be um, in, in Japan and somebody who was open to researching why this game was only now taking off in Japan? Why were why were people interested in developing it? And um, what was the what was the bedrock of support? What were the what were the where were the fans coming from to to support football or soccer uh, as uh, or soccer as I think it's sometimes translated into into a sort of a Japlish kind of way. So that was one of the ways I got interested in Japan. And then one of the, the answers to my question was that the start of a professional football league was one leg of a strategy to get uh, Japanese football um, in uh, increase its presence in the world game. And so uh, at that time, Japan hadn't qualified for a FIFA Men's World Cup. And another part of the, the, the strategy was to develop uh, the footballing uh, quality of the football play and to qualify for the World Cup, but actually to host a World Cup. And then ultimately that tr took me on to thinking about or finding out about the, the ways in which um, the race was on to try and host the first uh, East Asian or first Asian uh, soccer World Cup. Uh, which Japan did, but again, uh, introducing me to the world that I hadn't really investigated before of the politics, the power politics of these of FIFA and the IOC. The fact that South Korea were much more canny in terms of their their football politics 
and managed to persuade FIFA to uh, allow a co-hosted tournament for the first and at the moment only time. You've also produced a lot of work, uh, given your location in the world, around the London Olympics and the Paralympics in 2012, including an excellent book with Gary Winnell titled Understanding the Olympics. Looking back five years down the track, what's the legacy of the London Games, I suppose, both in terms of the games in the country or the nation itself, but also in terms of the sociology of sport and the way you've approached it? I guess there are, there is, you can almost say there are as many legacies as there are people who can, who can interpret the, uh, the, the games. You know, for the organisers, for the government of the day, which by then was a, a conservative and liberal democrat coalition, even though, if you like, the London Olympics were, were won under a Blair uh, government and administration in 2005, uh, that government, uh, uh, the Labour, last Labour government, was um, was defeated in the general election in 2010. So we had a different um, political group, um, political coalition involved in interpreting the games in a particular way, and inevitably they interpreted it as nothing but successful, as uh, demonstrating, and I think this is the word that they like to use more often than not, that the UK, Great Britain, could deliver. And I think that word delivery has been used again and again and again in British um, government, um, uh, I was going to say propaganda, but let's say promotion. Um, So that's one side of it. Then you have the other side of it, which you can say, well, what has been delivered in terms of the promised legacies? Well, um, I would say not a lot. Um, but then that is not unusual with, as we know, with a lot of these events. For example, one of the promises was to get was to get more people uh, active, one million people, uh, one million more people active. Well, Actually, that legacy promise was dropped before the games took place. Um, Then there was the issue of getting more people participating in sport. And again, the participation rates in sport have declined since um, 2012. So there have been issues around that side of things. Then there's the issue of the infrastructure. Now, my co-author, my good friend Gary Winnell, he calls himself a Londoner. He lives in London. He every, I, I am from London, but I haven't lived in London for many years. And that's partly why we came to write the first edition of the book, Understanding the Olympics. But Gary uh, and I took a walk around the Olympic Park uh, a year ago, just over a year ago. And there were some parts that were quite pleasant. Um, but there are some parts that, um, with regard to um, the housing and the people who were able to afford the housing that was supposed to be a mix of what's called social housing or low cost uh, market rate um, uh, rate housing. Um, in other words, affordable housing, that is for people who aren't earning lots of uh, money for, by working in the nearby city of London. Um, the housing uh, legacies is, is not as, as strong as was promised. 
And then you've got the stadium, the big the stadium that was built at, at enormous expense for for the Olympics that was meant to be ecologically and environmentally a very um, sound proposition and had to be adapted after the games to make it suitable for a tenant, which was a football club, West Ham United. So West Ham United have become the tenant and they have a fantastic deal Um something like a hundred year lease at very low cost. The local, um, the, the London uh, ratepayers, council taxpayers, um, are funding uh, the, the stadium, um, its maintenance, uh, the policing, uh, uh, much greater uh, uh, support than any other football team uh, enjoys in the rest of, of the UK. And there have been concerns about the way in which the stadium has become, well, compared to West Ham's old football ground, uh, not such a lucky, uh, not such a lucky place. They, West Ham have not performed very well. They're low in the division in the in the Premier League this year, and as a result, um, I think some people are thinking that, well, actually, for about uh, seven hundred and fifty million pounds. Uh, we would have expected, and which is the end final cost approximately of this stadium, one of the most nearly as expensive as the Wembley Stadium. We'd have expected something more out of that as, as a legacy uh, of, of the 2012 games. But if you ask most people, I think in the street, London 2012 is still because it was proclaimed as such as a, a as a really good success. It was a very fortunate two weeks when it hardly rained at all and. Londoners uh, had been told to leave uh, because it was going to get so busy. They left. And as a result, London was very, um, well, half empty, one might say. And the normal tourists, people coming to cultural uh, institutions, museums, art galleries and so on, stayed away. And as a result, this is a very familiar story because I'm aware of the situation in Sydney in 2000 that something similar happened, that people were warned about the Locals were warned about the likely uh, traffic problems and so on and the congestion and stayed away. And as a result, everything went very well um, in terms of the actual experience of the games. But the legacy is something, again, like most other games in recent years, is something we'll continue to debate, to debate and, and discuss uh, for years to come. Um, I think it hasn't stopped uh, the British from thinking that they can host events quite well. Uh, as as of uh, earlier this week, I read that Liverpool are considering putting in a bid to host the 2022 uh, Commonwealth Games since Durban in South Africa have had to withdraw. So there is an appetite for hosting the sports events. So of course, we had Glasgow in 2014, which again up in Scotland, which was a success by all accounts. Uh, again, questions about precisely whether legacy promises were fulfilled. But nonetheless, there is an appetite for hosting those sorts of things in, in Great Britain. And maybe that will be even more so with, you know, the upcoming uh, Brexit uh, uh, going to, to impact upon Britain's place in the world or it's certainly in Europe. Question about the way you go about your research. Um in, in terms of, I suppose, a process, but who or what do you read or listen to, perhaps, when you're trying to generate new ideas? It's an interesting question. I uh, I found myself, it may be the passage of time, 
But I, I found myself going back recently to um, Stan Cohen, uh, criminologist and sociologist, Stanley Cohen. And um, I can't get away from referring back to Stuart Hall, the founder of what's sometimes called British Cultural Studies. Um, I once was commissioned to write a book about Stuart Hall, which never, never saw the light of day, didn't materialise. And I think I, because of that, um, I've always had an interest in cultural studies approaches and Stuart's, Stuart's work. And again, fortunately, last week at the BSA, one of our um, plenary speakers was Professor Ben Carrington, who's at um, currently at the University of uh, Texas in Austin in the USA, although he's from from uh, London uh, originally, it's from London. And Ben uh, gave a very good plenary talk about Stuart, uh, Stuart's uh, pertinence, his relevance, and um, and connecting with you know another famous name from sociology, uh, C. Wright Mills, and his work in the sociological imagination. So I found, am I going? You know, it's a, a bit back to the past to think about the present. Uh, but I do find I've just finished a piece. Um, just published a piece in a collection uh, which draws upon Stan Cohen's work, um, in particular the more recent work, not The Folk Devils and Moral Panics, but his one of his last books called States of Denial, because, uh, because I've become interested in the way in which the, the mega event circus or circuit seems to have a perpetual uh attempts by some people to raise issues around um the negative side of hosting events and a constant rebuttal by the the boosters of these events in terms and in terms which are very close to denying uh the evidence that is put in front of them for the for the for the problems that can can arise as a result of hosting the games so i found stan cohen very useful to go back to um but I, I, um, I, I think at some stage you've asked me, you know, what, what is a book I think listeners should read? I mean, aside from Paul's book that I've mentioned earlier, Football and Ethnicity and Community, that's one of my recent books, I've also found fascinating a book by a Canadian scholar called Jackie Kennelly. Uh, it's published by the big company Routledge, but it's called Olympic Exclusions, Youth, Poverty and Social Legacies. And she studies... Um, she studied um, uh, legacies of Vancouver 2010, the Winter Olympic Games, and London 2012 by interviewing young people who, um, whose experience of being in the communities that hosted these games uh, was not as positive as the, you know, the, um, as the, uh, the, the, the the organisers would have us have us believe, and uh, and I'm going to be cheeky and I'll and suggest one last book that I always think is is great for a title. It doesn't actually deal very much with sport, but I think it is something that most people involved in, in whether you're a fan or a player, or or just a kind of you know a, a vague have a vague interest in. Uh, it's a book by a former um, professor of mine, Ian Crabe who published a book in 1994 called The Importance of Disappointment. 
Um, it's actually about psychosocial issues and the, it's a study of identity. But it's such an important part of being involved in sport. The fact that, for example, only six uh, soccer teams have ever won the English Premier League. Uh, you know, and there are 20 in the Premier League, but only two teams that we can mention from Manchester and Arsenal and Chelsea from London and two others, Leicester and Blackburn, have ever won this competition. And yet, come August, the, the season starts and all fans hope that they might be part of the, you know, um, might be in with a chance but most know that they can't possibly be so I think being disappointed is just an habitual part of actually following sport. Great chatting with you and thank you for joining me for the Media Sport podcast series. Thanks Brett thanks for inviting me.